This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Uma Paganam Pagan, and this week on Bookmark, I'm speaking to poet, curator, and writer John Matea. He is the author of 10 collections of poetry, travel logs, and a work of historical fiction called The Quiet Slave. Hi, my name is John Matea. I'm a uh, poet and a writer and a uh, art curator. Now, throughout this episode, you'll hear some readings of his work, courtesy of my fellow BFMers, Lim Sun Heng and Natasha Fusil. I was brought up in, um, in Johannesburg, but as a child, we moved to, to Canada, to Toronto. And then we moved to Australia as a family in 89, to Perth. And after that, I, I lived for about 10 years in, in Melbourne. And I've moved back to Perth, yeah. So um, for me, I suppose, coming from South Africa and my parents are from Cape Town, we've always had a sense of being on the Indian Ocean. So even though Perth's basically like this this desert island far from everywhere, <laughs> I can orientate because people in Cape Town always had a sense of being between Europe and, and the so-called Far East. And, and it's a port city, you know, like Malacca or like Penang's places like that. So I always, I always felt like located like that. So even though Perth's very quiet, it feels part of that world. You're a poet. You write some fiction and you also curate uh, the visual arts as yes. well. I want to talk about your fiction a little bit, but let's talk about the poetry and the visual arts yes. and the stuff you've curated. I, I came across four of your poems on the internet and I think it was in the... World Literature. Oh, okay, that makes sense, yeah. The magazine. World Literature Today. That's yeah. right, World Literature yeah, yeah. Today magazine. And I really enjoyed the one about the Mall of the Emirates. We don't use the word exile anymore, despite meeting in the Mall of the Emirates, that hyperbolic cave, ordering what is expensive peasant food, while contemplating our prospects on two or maybe three continents confessing that we no longer return to our natal countries. We are unlike our taxi drivers with our perpetually renewable visas and self-conscious amnesia, even if we too could forever cruise down Dubai's freeways, reminiscing on the stupas of Anuradhapurna. How in the sunlight they glint, like rice bowls overturned. In consolation, we have what used to be literature, its metamorphosis, those phantoms of our other lives. Or isn't it the other way around? Haven't we been expelled from the garden of nothingness to wander decade-long lost in thought, imagining a Mutina street as an avenue in Tunis, grey palm trees attempting shadow against gilded exhaust haze? Ali, Remember the dream you told me of, Hafiz appearing to an Australian scholar, nominating him his interpreter? That's probably how we ended up here in this extravaganza of shops, this oasis, as a poem born on the tip of another's tongue, as perfectly translatable synonyms for that word, exile. Oh, okay, yes, yes. That's that's again it's sort of a port a port city phenomenon. Yeah. Um, if only because I had those same sensations every time yeah. when I was there as well. 
Yeah. Well, the thing with with with, um, with with Dubai is that for people from Australia, that's like one of the midway points to elsewhere. Yeah, America, like, Europe, or or you know, as you fly like Perth, KL, or Perth, Singapore, or Perth, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Europe. So that's sort of like contemporary version of Cape Town, you know. <laughs> and um, the person I actually talk about in the poem is a friend of mine. He's 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 Australian now, but he was brought up in Iran, and he was a translator of uh, classical Persian poetry. He's now become a, a novelist. But it was about that sort of meeting place, you know, this midpoint meeting place. And also the other thing that I mentioned in the poem, um, which is sort of relevant to here, is when I got in the taxi in Perth to go to the airport, it was a Sri Lankan taxi driver. When I got in the taxi from the airport in Dubai to the hotel, it was a Sri Lankan taxi driver. So I felt very much, you know, on the Indian Ocean again. <laughs> well, I'm convinced that Dubai doesn't have any citizenry of its own. <laughs> yeah, you, you only see them stamp your passport and then that's pretty, pretty much, much it, isn't pretty it? Pretty much. Uh, and talk to me about your poetry. What is your process? What, what, are the, what, are, what are the things you like to write about most? I mean, the four poems I came across were yeah. all about a sense of place, if you will. Yeah. I mean, there was the one about stabbing those practitioners of Barthard in the back. When in the cathedral at Santiago de Compostela, I will be invited to hug for good luck. The marble torso of the saint, I won't. Not for moral reasons. Embracing someone from behind like that reminds me too much of how, in the apartheid army, we were taught to approach the enemy to slit the throat. That's about the statue that's in um, Santiago de Compostela. So it's actually the statue of uh, Santiago, uh, who was the patron saint of the Americas, um, i.e. of conquest. <laughs> no, well, I, th- I think your observation is right, even though it's based on four poems, and I have about 10 books now. <laughs> so there's a lot of poems. But I think sometimes people talk about my poetry as a poetry of travel, which, which in one way it is because I have poems about various places in Asia, about South Africa, about Mexico even, about the Portuguese world. But actually I see, I see the poetry as being about this kind of conjunction of language and place and in that conjunction they're about history. So I really think of myself not as a poet of travel but as a poet of, of tracing histories through travelling. Um, and I think that sort of may be true of, of almost all the work, except maybe the earlier work, which was, which was very much the shock of, of, of immigrating, you know, which was effectively the which second in immigration. Which in a sense is, yeah. Well, but it's, in a way it's related as well because the shock of immigrating is when you lose your language and reference and sense of place in history. The distinction between poetry and prose is actually a distinction of kind of form, which has to do with the kind of music of the language. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but you see, in a place like uh, South Africa, there was actually a during the apartheid years, there was really a resistance to the kind of um, aesthetic pleasure of poetic forms. Huh. And so, depending on the poets, there were. Poets doing different things, but there was a resistance to pleasing people with language because it was felt to be not political. It was felt to be facing the political problems of the Almost time. Almost flippant and nonchalant. Yeah, yeah, and 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 um, and so so there's that element to do with the music and the structure which comes from poetry, which isn't there in my poetry in the same way as with many other poets. But the other side of it is that. 
in the apartheid era, which is basically when I was growing up, and the worst the worst period of the apartheid era was probably those years that I was growing up. You also were in were in an environment of misinformation and propaganda. And so the very idea of writing a sentence that was clear and meaningful was actually political. So to write something, even if it didn't have poetic music, was actually political and and actually had a kind of clarity and music of itself because it was free of those constraints of, of the misinformation but also free of the constraints of having to perform a kind of a, a European kind of poetic music. And so, I mean, as I said, other poets were doing different kinds of things with that. But I think that was that was true of many poets at that time. And some poets actually just produced like found poems where they would just find something that was insightful from a newspaper. And that would actually be presented without any alteration, you know. Which is a form of protest in itself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, um, you know, like I've sort of not, not had access to, to much news for the past five weeks. And I think we're in a time now where we really, really do need to think about these things again. You know, where this is very dangerous times, you know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Talk to me about the visual arts stuff that you curate. I've been writing about visual arts for um, over two decades. But in the last four years, I've been working on art projects. Uh, curating. Uh, the first one had actually some Malaysian artists in it. It had uh, a film work by Hayati Mokhtar and Dane Iskandar Said, and it also had some works by Simran Gill. But that exhibition was uh, exhibited in Perth, but to, to use artists from Australia who are working elsewhere, like some of those artists work in Indonesia or in, um, or in Bali, like in Jogja and Bali, and uh, one of the Australian artists worked in Madagascar. So it was to have Australian artists who were working in the Indian Ocean region, but also to bring some artists from the region to, to Australia. So, so we also had um, artists from, from Singapore. We had an Australian artist who's from Iran. Uh, to, to kind of give people in, in Western Australia the idea of where they are, because Australia is always described as an uh, Asian Pacific country, but actually half of it's on the Indian Ocean, and you could also say one part of it's on, on the Southern Ocean too. But, but actually the history of the Indian Ocean is, is, is almost unrelated to the history of the Pacific, uh, of the uh, movements of peoples, but also the um, explorations. Uh, so that was one show. And then I've done recently, and we'll talk about it further, this a project with the people from the Cocos, Cocos Keeling Islands, which is exactly between Australia and Colombo. <laughs> Um, Perth and Colombo. And most recently, I curated an exhibition uh, based on uh, the idea of, of what the region looks like if we bear in mind that the first explorers of the region, that means who got to Australia, were Dutch. The first explorers Western explorers were, were Portuguese, but the Dutch got to Australia first. And so I, I used that moment of the Dutch arrival in Australia as a way of orientating the Australian history. So we had Dutch artists, South African artists, uh, Balinese artists and Australian artists. So again, this Indian Ocean kind of geography in the work, an imaginary, I suppose. I'm speaking to poet, curator and author John Mateer. Here's Lim Sun Heng again, reading another one of his poems. This one is called Alicante. Nobody believes me when I say the city looks like Waikiki. The beaches curving away under their wall of new hotels and on the lone bare mountain where a cryptic diamond head should be. 
the Moorish hallucination of a Roman castle. They should not far away while west towns await a cinematic eye and south across the azure mediterranean my doppelganger stands in a striped galabia feet planted on the earth of jama el ifna and with father in his heart he recites into the ear of an old goite solo a poem on the lost caliphate and on the world to come Let's talk about the project involving the Cocos Keeling Islands. Yeah. It's about the Cocos Malays. Yes, and of that's course, right. the Malay people, if you will, I mean, they stretch all the way from Cape Town down to where we are through the Philippines. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a race with a really large geographic yeah, footprint. Sure. And when I came across this writing that you had done about, it's called The Quiet Slave, A History in Eight Episodes. Is it safe to call it historical fiction? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's the that's the best way to describe it. It's um, maybe I talk first about the project and then about the background. So, yeah. so, so this came out of a, a a visual arts project where I was looking at the photographs that belongs to the Cocos Malay people who live in Australia, and they live principally in a town south of Perth, but also in some other cities in Western Australia, and. At one point, they just said to me, like, basically, we don't have photographs before the 1970s because we weren't paid in money. <laughs> wow. And so this led me to sort of think, well, what, what, what was this place that they came from, these Cocos Keeling Islands? And so it began as a sort of a visual art project that couldn't go ahead. And the more I spoke with people... Because that, you had no photographs. There were no, <laughs> there were no images to work with. And so, um, so this was part of a larger, a, a larger exhibition of which mine was only one project called Future Recalled which is based in, in Perth and brings artists from elsewhere to work in Western Australia, mostly in, in remote places. And I went to actually the third most remote place that's Australian Territory. <laughs> the first most remote is Antarctica. Right. Okay? And, and so as I spoke with people, what I realised is, is, is the thing that interested me was how they came to be Cocos Malays, how they came to be this kind of ethnicity. And as I understood it, they originated in Malacca, and so I started talking. So what began as a visual arts project started evolving into a kind of a history project to investigate in how these people who from that cosmopolitan city of Malacca ended up being a, a single ethnic group on these far-flung islands. And I began by interviewing the older people in the community. And it didn't take me long to realize that there was a lot of confusion about the actual history. Mm -hmm. As I started doing reading and talking with other people on the islands themselves, I realized that what was interesting to me in their story, but what would be uh, interesting for them, and I really wanted to make something that they would, that they, they would be interested in and engaged with was was the beginnings of the island because they believed that the family who owned the islands, the Clooney's Ross family, were the people who took them to the islands. Some people had read about this and, and knew this wasn't exactly the case, but in general, the understanding was that the Clooney's Ross family, who owned the islands from the 1830s until the 1970s in this kind of like post-imperial regime, okay, like a plantation. It's very much like was like a plantation sort of social structure. Right. That the older people thought that, that the Clooney's Ross family had taken them and that they had stayed in the employ of the Clooney's Ross family until the Australian government forced the Clooney's Ross family to sell the islands. 
But what I found when I did the research was that they had actually been taken by the former employer of the, the first John Clooney's Ross, a man called Alexander Hare who actually had been a very important person in Malacca, but for various reasons, some unclear, some you can speculate on with some degree of veracity, became effaced from the history of the region. He was a friend of someone very famous, Stanford Raffles. Right. But the later biographies of Raffles um, all repeat the same negative facts about him that are contained in certain documents. The earlier biographies of Raffles, uh, in particular one from the 19th century, I'm not sure if it's the Lady Raffles one or if it's another one. I think it's another one. actually contains letters that were exchanged between Raffles and Alexander Hare even after both had left this part of the world. So it, it, it interested me because people were saying, oh, well, Alexander Hare was this fairly – nefarious slave owner who had a harem of 30 Malay women, and this is repeated in every single text. Right. Then I realized that that actually came principally from something Clooney's Ross said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so as I started to read, I started to read between the lines, and I'm not saying Alexander Hare was a very good person, but the circumstances that he was caught up in were more complicated than people have given an account for. And what seems to be the case is that he had this household of slaves in Malacca, a certain number of whom had been given as gifts by sultans, mostly from Borneo. As slavery was being outlawed in the British Empire, many people, and Alexander Hare was one of them, didn't know what to do with their household of slaves because the buying and selling of slaves was outlawed first and the owning was outlawed about 20 years later. So there was this strange period, which very few people have written about, where people were sort of sailing around, not knowing quite what to do with their household or their um, assets, you could call them. In some cases, the people were just abandoned in Cape Town, and then the, the former owners sailed back to Europe. In the case of Hare, he seemed undecided. So he went with Stanford Raffles in the invasion of Java. He bought a plantation on Java. Uh, where these, these these people from his household worked. Then when Java was returned to the Dutch, he sailed by various ports to Cape Town where he stayed for five years and then he sailed and settled on Cocos. Shortly afterwards, a few months later, Clooney's Ross arrives and said... I thought I was going to settle on on the Cocos Islands. This is my island. Yeah, and then began this contest between the two of them as to who would get the islands. And then that's when it becomes obscure as to what actually happened. And that's what my book is about, those five years when, when they were on the islands. And basically what happens is there's this contest – and as I said, I'm not going to defend Alexander Hare because um, at one point towards the end of his stay, he built a house and he kept the younger woman of the community under the house, like livestock, you know, in those houses like in Sumatra. Uh, and he kept their teenage children in a kind of enclosure on a small island called uh, Palabras. And Clooney's Ross family had some of the other islands and then a whole range of things happened and it concluded with Alexander Hare sailing away and the, the people being left behind. And so my, my book are about the eight episodes that I think give an insight into actually the logic of what was occurring then. And the other thing that's very interesting about it is it also uh, takes place more or less parallel with the settling of Western Australia. 
There's right. only a few years difference. And at one point, Clooney's Ross says in one of his letters, had, had he known about the settlement in Western Australia, which became Perth, he would have rather gone there. So I say to people sometimes, oh, well, maybe there would have been this big community of Malays in, in Western Australia. Well, well there are now, sort of, but, you know, they've all migrated from here. But it might have been a Malay majority. <laughs> yeah. you know, it might have been a province of Malaysia like Borneo. In 1820, Alexander Hare, the owner of a household of slaves and an increasingly controversial figure among the British in the East Indies, abandoned his plantation on Java and sailed for Cape Town. After setting up a farm and working it for five years, he decided to return to the Indies. On the question of whether this was prompted by his being ostracised by Cape Town society for his behaviour and owning slaves, the records are unclear. However, it's well recorded that Hare was undecided as to his ship's final destination, and this uncertainty led to a mutinous confrontation between him and the crew before their eventual landing at the Cocos Islands. Rosie was with her baby on the deck of the ship when the fight broke out. They were arguing. She couldn't understand what the sailors and the captain were saying to Twan Alexander, their owner, who had brought them all the way across the ocean for the second time. They were shouting in English. Now Malacca was a distant but fond memory. Before that long, sad voyage to Cape Town, they had for years lived on Twan Alexander's Java plantation. Cape Town. If only Twan Alexander had made his home there, in that port city, instead of on a windy farm. Cape Town was like Malacca, with all its British and Dutch and Portuguese, with the many slaves from Bengal, Mozambique, Madagascar, even Java and Bali. And many were Muslims too, like Twain Alexander's people, like Rosie. Once, she had even seen a Malay funeral party, walking alongside the road led by a proud imam wearing a turban. So what happened to the Cocos Malays between the post-colonial era and then, you know, when there were photographs in the 70s? I mean, what happened in those intervening uh, well, when years? Do you, when, when do you begin the post-colonial era in the 40s? I guess in I the suppose. 40s or 50s. Okay. Uh, well, basically what happened was... Uh, oh, how um, isolated were they? Oh, very isolated. Very, very... Um, there, were, there, were, there were points of contact o- over the years, uh, but essentially from, from when the islands were settled in 1825, I think, until the 1860s, it was only passing ships that went by. In about the 1860s, they needed more workers, so they got more workers to come from Java. And, and at that period, the people on the islands were actually drawing a distinction between themselves and the people from Java. So there are actually two kampungs separate and separate uh, cemeteries. Then probably in the, 19, the early 20th century, there was a communication with Singapore because that's actually where they were, they were trading basically with Singapore. They were sending copper to Singapore and, and goods being imported were, were, were almost always coming from Singapore. Then in the war years, uh, something interesting happened, um, which is recounted in a, a thesis by a man called John Hunt. A sultan, I don't recall exactly where he was from, probably in the Moluccas, sided with the Japanese during the Second World War and was exiled to Cocos. And what happened for the people on Cocos then is for the first time ever, they actually saw like a sultan of their people. Because the cultural logic of the, the islands was such that the Clooney's Ross family actually operated as, as kind of sultans, like uh, with their sort of Kapala Dessa 
of the village, you know, like village headman. And in fact, the John Clooney's Ross, um, the, I don't know if it was true of the first, but of several of, because many of them were called John Clooney's Ross. That's so kind of funny to try to keep track with them all. Um, uh, at least one of them used to always carry a knife in his belt, almost like a Chris. And so they were like these these sort of emblems of Malay culture that the Clooney's well, Ross family were using strategically, I think, uh, in a symbolic way to represent power. Then when, when this, the, this sultan came and he was, I think, exiled there, I don't know if it was for as long as a year, maybe it was less, the people were very impressed by this because they'd never seen like the real thing. And according to John Hunt, this was this was sort of the decline in authority of 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 the Clooney's Ross family. Also, because in the forties, because of war rationing, um, they couldn't actually get the food that they often wanted from Singapore, because of course Singapore was occupied. And so, the thing that I've I've heard and and which is in in John Hunt's thesis is that the Malay people there were saying, well. You know, we believed in the Clooney's Ross family that they would take care of us, but now we don't have enough food. They're not taking care of us. And then this begins a kind of dissension that sort of reaches a point in the 50s where a group of men actually go to make complaints to the Australian government officer who was stationed there at one point. And then those guys actually got exiled, sort of exiled to Christmas Island. And I know this because one of those men was the father of the current imam in Katanning now, which is the town south of Perth. And the Clooney's Ross family always said, you're not slaves. You can, you can leave whenever you want, but you're not welcome back. <laughs> And so, so, so there's this sort of cultural, strange cultural logic. So from about the 50s, it started breaking down. And then by the 70s, there were various, various pressures from the outside. And there was also a, a notorious interview given by one of the Clooney's Ross family to a British newspaper, which led to people in England saying that those people were kept as slaves in, in Cocos. And eventually... In I think the late 70s, early 80s, uh, there was a UN mission sent to decolonize Cocos. And so what happened in the, um, the 80s is they had a referendum where they could choose what they wanted, how they wanted to be administrated. And I think from memory, one of the options was they could choose to be part of Malaysia or part of Australia, and they chose Australia. So, And what about in 2016? How many Cocos Malays, well still identify themselves as Cocos Malays yeah. and how many of them are there on those islands? Yeah, on, on the islands themselves, there's a, about 500 uh, Malay people. There's right. about 100 non-Malay people, mostly from Western Australia who work in administration there. I think there's about 1,500 Cocos Malay people altogether, maybe a bit more. And there's also a community in Borneo that I don't know too much about who might who might number about 1,000 themselves or maybe more. So you could say around about 2,000-something. The community on Cocos, they, they are very consolidated as a, as a group. So, so amongst themselves, they speak in the Cocos Malay dialect. Um, they're very devout Muslims, so their social life is very much around, around the mosque. They do travel um, often to Malaysia or, or, to, or to Australia. Uh, the people in Katanning are a bit of a different case because they, um, they mostly went to work at the Halal Abattoir there in the, in the late 70s. And so many of the people work in the abattoir still. 
and some of their children have now moved to other cities like to Perth or, or, to, or to Bunbury and work in other industries. Again, their life is very much focused around the mosque, but the, the, uh, the practice of the language seems to not be, uh, not be as sustained as it is on the islands. So they've integrated completely almost into, I guess, Australian life. Uh, well, not really. No, I think they lead – I think in Katang's like a little bit like an island itself. Like I think they lead, they lead a life that they would see as, as, as a Cocos Malay life. Um, but it's, it's, it's a different life to what occurs on the islands, um, you know. And the islands like they're about a half a meter above sea level and they're about 1,000 kilometers from the nearest coast – so, of course, it would be quite different there. <laughs> but what really interested me with, with, with these people and with the history was how, how they came to be from Malacca. Um, and, and if you go like one or two generations back from Malacca, ultimately they were from various places in the region. But how they came to be this one group of people, this ethnic group. And I suppose the other thing that interests me is like what it, what's required to retain a language you know, and it seems like if you have 500 people who live in a community, you can keep a language. You know, and so I've been talking in um, in recent days in Malacca with people from the Portuguese Malaccan community uh, because they have a similar circumstance, which is they're a small community with their own dialect, and so they have to sort of see like to what extent like they can retain their, their dialect and the and the culture that goes with their identity. The male slaves who knew several languages had spread the rumour that slavery was over, that they should now all be free, that Tuan Alexander was unfairly keeping them. But Rosie and many of the others believed that if this were true, then Tuan Alexander would have freed them. Tuan Alexander, they felt, was not an unfair man. Those same male slaves had said that Tuan Alexander was in trouble with the Dutch and the King of England. That was why he had been forced to leave Java. That was the reason that they had to leave the Cape and were now sailing again, already having crossed the ocean, visiting Mozambique, Mauritius, Diego Garcia and the small islands of Nias, off Sumatra. Now below the deck, as the sound of the ocean was slapping at the hull and the inside of the ship tank like a dying animal, Rosie was worried. She was the mother of two boys, one a baby at her breast, the other an adolescent. The ship was filled with slave men and their women and children. This was not a ship that could sail to England. There in the half-dark, Rosie started to pray, as she did every day. But ultimately, I think this kind of project is, is really about where we are culturally now. Like in Australia, Australian culture is, is completely swamped by American culture now. I mean, we are on islands already, in a, in a way. Um, what we think of being on these islands and what we think of those, the culture of those islands are or what we would like those cultures to be, I don't know. That should be debated. But I think now with the digital technology and, and how things are changing economically, uh, it, it is very difficult to retain a sense of a relation between an identity, a language and cultural meaning. And, and really often, and this goes back to poetry and also to visual arts, very often people talk about poetry as if it's like some very like rarefied thing that has nothing to do with them. But actually, poetry is the inner life of a language. And what we're sort of losing with a lot of things that are going on now is this ability to articulate an inner life. 
And so this emphasis on the nuances of language and its meaning and poetic forms and poetic meaning and the integrity of them, this is something very crucial, even though this, this project seems very sort of strange and, and poetry might seem to have nothing to do with many people. But actually everyone uses language and everyone has to articulate themselves. So I don't think it's a strange, arcane-like thing about a faraway island. I mean, I think it's sort of about how we, how we retain a sense of meaning. I've been speaking to poet and author John Mateer. You can find a selection of his books on Amazon.com. Thanks again to Lim Soon Heng and Natasha Fusil for lending me their voices and for reading those excerpts you've heard throughout this episode. This is Bookmark on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.